You know, it's so easy when we get into the busyness of this particular season uh, that there are certain elements that um, really should be fundamental. They should be primary to why the whole season exists, why Christmas Day actually exists. But they seem to get lost in everything else uh, that we uh, are doing. And in this uh, brief series, uh, we just want to reclaim some of those elements that actually make Christmas what it was from the beginning of time actually supposed to be. Now, do you realize that every time you check your calendar, every time you refer to a date or write one down, you're using Jesus Christ as your reference point? It's pretty phenomenal when you think about it because of Jesus, history is divided into B.C., that's before Christ, into uh, A.D., Anno Domini, that means in the year of our Lord. And so every other event in history is dated by how many days and years it's been since Jesus came to this earth to live amongst his people. That's how significant this event is that we celebrate uh, called Christmas uh, in our world. And part of our culture, anyway, in fact, part of the culture around the world. I spent a few days in Germany uh, this last week and uh, went to two German Christmas markets. And let me just say that if you've never done that, that needs to go on your bucket list. You got to do that. You got to experience that. Don't bring any credit cards or money. Don't do anything like that. But at least just go and be part of that. And I noticed that even in the German culture, a very significant portion of that Christmas celebration involves giving gifts. My family tells me all the time that I'm one of the most difficult people uh, to shop for. And I tell them that is because I am totally satisfied that I want absolutely nothing, Uh, at least nothing that they can afford. There are things that I want Uh, that they can't afford. I had my eye a couple weeks ago on a 57 Corvette, if anybody is looking for uh, gift ideas for me. But uh, even last night, my 16-year-old daughter said, come on, Dad, seriously, what do you want for Christmas? And uh, some of you uh, that are my age and my season of life, you will agree with me when I say this. I told her, what I want is time with you. That's what I want. I just want to spend time with you, time with your brothers, time with my daughter-in-law, time with my wife. That's a great Christmas uh, for me. But they always try. In fact, I wanted to share just a couple of things uh, that they did uh, just last year. Last year, my son and daughter-in-law got me this. Now, some of you know that I'm a Nebraska uh, Cornhusker fan. Um, Just a little bit more than a fan, probably. But Jordan had this made. This is from an old beam in a barn. And uh, it was cut and then painted specifically for me. And you say, well, what's the value of that? Well, probably to you, not much. But I will say, uh, to me, uh, that's priceless. They thought of me. uh, They knew what I liked. And I will treasure that uh, till the day that I die. Um, Last year, I also received um, uh, from my wife a bottle of cologne. Now, um, <clears throat> let, me say, let me just say, this came from a store that I really don't go in. In fact, I was in Hamburg, Germany on uh, Monday, and we went into one of these stores that I'm not going to name. You'll, you'll figure out what the store is. And right when you walk into the store, you know, if you were blindfolded, okay, you know what this store is. Some of you know the store I'm talking about already. And I just, and I know, I'm just, this is confession. We value authenticity here at Northwest. 
Um, I've really grown to like their cologne. I can't wear any of the clothes in this particular store. I can guarantee you that the jeans probably would come up to my knees, all right? So, but the cologne is a different story, and so she bought me this cologne. Now, what I, what I know that I need to do when I get this cologne, because I've had a couple of bodies of bodies. (laughs) That's what I'm looking at right now. Um, I've had a couple of bodies. Had a couple of bottles of this cologne, and what I do immediately is I take off the sticker that's on it, because quite frankly, I don't want to look at that every morning and be reminded of what I'm not and I never uh, will be. And, and so the day after Christmas, you know, you kind of unwrap your gifts and, and you, uh, uh, you know, you, you're going to use some of them. And for me, they're always practical, you know, socks or something like that, and so I went in and, and uh, got out my bottle of cologne, and I immediately took uh, the sticker off, and I was getting ready to go out to breakfast, and I had on a Panther Creek uh, hooded sweatshirt, football sweatshirt. And I thought this would be really funny. My daughter-in-law was out there, you know, and I thought this would be really funny. And so I took it just like this, and I stuck it right on the sweatshirt, Right? And I thought that would really be funny. Went to breakfast and everybody thought that was really funny. And we got done with breakfast and uh, cleaned up. And, um, and I told Diana that I needed to run an errand real, real quickly. And I needed to go to Home Depot. And so I jumped in the car with my... Yeah, you know where this is going, don't you? <clears throat> I jumped in the car. I got into Home Depot. And I'm walking around and everybody I see is kind of going... You know, and I thought, wow, Panther Creek, man, they are, you know, everybody knows who Panther Creek is. And I, I got home and I, even on the way home, I thought, wow, people are so friendly. It's just the festivities of the season. I went into uh, the restroom and I looked in the mirror and I realized that I had walked around Home Depot for a half an hour with this little sticker stuck to the center uh, of uh, my chest. And, um, uh, for the last uh, 12 months, uh, my wife has stuck this on the soap dispenser in the bathroom, hoping that this will be inspiration uh, for me. As you can tell, it has uh, created uh, quite the uh, effect on me. Um, yeah, I mean, the things we do with gift, and the, and the truth is that gifts, no matter how great they are, don't last forever. In fact, as I look back at my childhood and the childhood even of uh, my children, uh, there are a lot of the gifts that they're going to get on Christmas morning that really won't even make it past Christmas morning, right? You ever buy those things? They seem like such a great idea, and uh, they don't last. Uh, Maybe you don't need to be reminded, but in the spirit of reclaiming Christmas, I want to remind you that at Christmas we celebrate the greatest gift that's ever been given. In fact, the verse of Scripture that's probably most familiar uh, to all of us, no matter where you are in your uh, Christian experience, whether you've known Jesus for a long time, whether you're here and you're exploring the claims of Christ on your life, I guarantee you, you've heard the verse that proclaimed God's great gift, and that is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, He gave his only son. He gave us a gift with no strings attached that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And here's the truth of the matter. Gifts usually don't transform lives. 
Neither one of those gifts, as great as a bottle of cologne is, as great as this carving is, um, neither one of those things transformed and changed my life. And most of the gifts, all of the gifts probably that you will get on Christmas Eve or Christmas morning, they won't transform your life. And they certainly won't transform billions of lives. But when God gave his son to us 2,000 years ago, it forever changed the eternal destiny of those who would receive that gift that he gave. It's a gift that's eternal. It never breaks. It never fades. It never goes out of style. And it's a gift that has literally transformed millions, billions of lives. And it's the gospel. And it's about Jesus. And that is why we celebrate Christmas. And can I just remind you that in the, in the busyness and the, uh, and the hustle and bustle of all the things that we do, not to forget that. It's interesting, in fact, as we look back at the first months after the birth of Jesus, uh, that the response of those seeking him was to bring gifts. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 2. He gives us a, a brief account of a visit that Jesus, Jesus received from what the text says, depending on your translation. It says that uh, he received these gifts from wise men or from magi. They came from the east, most likely Persia. They came looking for the one, the text says us, that tells us that was born king of the Jews. And it's interesting to note that they came, indeed, bringing gifts. And the Bible doesn't tell us very much about these ancient visitors that came to Jerusalem. Scholars have been puzzled by it uh, almost since the beginning, since they made their journey. Millions of Christmas cards show three kings or wise men or magi that are presenting gifts to a tiny child in a manger. Uh, We know, I don't want to mess up your nativity scene, but uh, we know that that's not exactly accurate, right? We know that those wise men uh, most likely were not there at the birth of Jesus when he lie in a manger. People sing, we three kings of Orient are, bearing gifts we travel so far. But we don't even know for sure that there were three wise men. There very easily could have been many more than three. We're not told their number. We're not told their names. We're not told their means of transportation to Palestine. We can, in fact, as we look back at what Bible scholars uh, know about uh, wise men, about magi, that they probably traveled um, maybe dozens, if not hundreds of them together, their whole entourage. We don't know what specific country they came from. We're not told that they were kings or that they weren't kings. We don't even know specifically when they arrived in Bethlehem, but it is likely in view of their long journey and Herod's command that children under two years be killed, that they arrived uh, shortly after Jesus became a young child. It's a little bit of a context. Let me read for you. If you have uh, turned there in your Bibles or, or there on your, uh, on, your, on your electronic device, let me just read for you Matthew's account found in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Matthew wrote this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And they said, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Very, very significant because these weren't weren't Jews. We know that. Uh, These were Gentiles. 
And they have said, where's the king of the Jews? We've come to worship him. Now, you need to understand that Herod was an intensely jealous and paranoid king. In fact, any mention of a potential rival sent him into a frenzy of fear and anger. And so just the question that those wise men or those magi asked uh, of Herod um, stirred up a lot of emotion for him. Verse 3 says, when Herod heard the king, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall become a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Verse 7, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Fairly intriguing as you read that, and you think, Well, Herod really isn't so bad, right? He wants them to go and find the child, and when they find the child, he wants them, he instructs the Magi to proceed with their mission and then report their findings to him as they returned home. He hypocritically gave them a good-sounding reason for wanting to know the exact location when we find out uh, later on in the text that his motivation was to destroy this young child who was born to be the Messiah. Verse 9 says, After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered gifts. Pay attention to these. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now the fact that so little information is given by Matthew... Um, and the fact that he wasn't interested so much in how many wise men there were and where they came from and the length of the journey and when they arrived and uh, the origin of the star that served to be their GPS, it seems rather clear to me that what Matthew wanted to communicate was the fact that from the very beginning of of this story, Gentiles came to worship the Jewish Messiah. And he was most interested in the significance of the gifts that they brought with them. The text says, when they found Jesus, they fell down and they worshipped him. Then opening their treasure, they offered him three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, we don't know uh, for sure, by the way, and I want to be careful as we uh, get into this text, as we exposit Scripture Uh, We believe it's very, very important not to read into things and not to assume things that aren't specifically said. But we do know some things historically about these three gifts. And I want to tell you just briefly what we know. We know gold, for example, throughout history has been considered to be the most precious of metals. It's long been a universal symbol of wealth. If you have a lot of gold, you're considered to be wealthy. In fact, uh, even in countries uh, in the world uh, today, there are countries that actually hoard gold because the more gold they believe that you have, the more wealthy indeed that you are. We know that gold was used extensively in the building of the temple, that it's a symbol of nobility and royalty. And how fitting 
And yet how curious it was that these men would bring gold to a small child. I can assume that if on Christmas morning, if you have small children, I can assume that if they opened up a box and they saw a gold bar, they probably wouldn't get too excited about it, right? I mean, you, you might say to them, do you realize that this gold bar is worth $5,000? But I guarantee you'd start seeing some tears come down out of the eyes. They don't want gold, right? It's curious to me that they would bring a young child gold. And yet I want to suggest to you this, that they were convinced that indeed this was the promised one who would be the Savior, not only of the Jews, but would be the Savior of the whole world. And they gave him a gift that acknowledged him as king, that acknowledged his royalty. Now, I don't know how you feel about history. Uh, Certainly, uh, the Bible is a remarkable book in the fact that all of the Old Testament uh, prophecies that were given were fulfilled in the New Testament. That's a remarkable thing. But to think that these Gentile men would come from a land far away, and the first gift that they would offer to this small, small child would be gold, acknowledging his kingship and his royalty is an incredible thing. The second gift that they brought the text says, is frankincense. And frankincense is a costly and beautiful smelling incense that was used uh, mostly on special occasions because it was rather expensive. It's a white resin or gum, and it's obtained from a tree uh, literally by making incisions in the bark and then allowing the gum to flow out from that. It's highly fragrant when it's burned, and Therefore, it is uh, most often when we see, especially in the Old Testament, it's used in worship. It would sometimes, in fact, um, scholars tell us, would be blended with the meal offerings that were presented to the priests by the people to be offered as thanksgiving and praise to God. And so the frankincense gave the offering, no matter what it was, whether it was a meal offering or uh, an animal offering, it gave uh, the sacrifice a sweet-smelling odor. In fact, in January, we're going to begin a series in the book of Philippians. We're going to go through uh, the book of Philippians uh, systematically. And, and in Philippians chapter 4, Paul was probably thinking of incense when he compared the gifts of the Philippians uh, to such a sacrifice when he called them in Philippians 4.18, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice that was pleasing to God. It's most interesting to me that the wise men, whether intentionally or unintentionally, by bringing the gift of frankincense, pointed to this very, very small child, most likely only a few months old, that they pointed to him being the great high priest, the one whose entire life would be spent pleasing his father, who would ultimately lay down his life as a sacrifice for mankind. An amazing thing. You say, well, just maybe that's just, that's just how they rolled. That was typically the gifts that they gave to a small child. Well, you have to have a lot of faith to believe that. They bring gold. They bring frankincense. I can't see any toddler uh, that I've ever had living in my home that would have been thankful for that. And the last gift is probably the most significant. Just as gold spoke to his royalty and his kingship, And incense spoke to the perfection of his life as a sacrifice uh, for mankind. Myrrh, that third gift, speaks to his death. 
Myrrh was attained from a tree in the same manner as frankincense, and it was a spice that was used in the embalming process. Because it was used in embalming, it was a very important item of commerce in the ancient world. In fact, we read in Scripture that when Nicodemus came to prepare the body of Jesus after his body had been taken down off the cross, that Nicodemus removed his body and used approximately 100 pounds of myrrh and aloes. Now, if 100 pounds or somewhere near 100 pounds in that combination with myrrh and aloes was used for one body, you can imagine how how it must have constantly been kneaded and bought and sold for funeral arrangements. But think about this for just one moment. Of all the gifts to bring to a young child, of all the gifts to bring to a young child, gold, okay, you could say I'm going to give to my, uh, to my preschool grandson or granddaughter, I'm going to give them this Christmas a bar of gold. And while they might not appreciate it right then, one day they would appreciate that, right? I remember when granddaddy, grandma gave me this bar of gold, and one day it would be worth something. Uh, frankincense, you know, it, it smells nice. Okay, I can, I can stretch and I can see the value of that. But can you imagine on any birth that you've ever celebrated bringing a gift that symbolized, that gave significance to death? as you're celebrating a new life. By any human measure, this gift would have seemed very odd, if not offensive, to present a spice that was used for embalming to celebrate the birth of a child. In this case, however, it was not offensive, nor was it odd. It was a gift of faith, I believe, by the wise men, by the magi, of a prophecy that had been foretold that Jesus' life and ministry And his ultimate death was going to involve suffering. See, when you see that little baby lying in a manger, it's important to understand what 33 years later would happen to that little baby. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 and 5 say this, Surely he has borne our griefs and he's carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we're healed. That would be his ultimate purpose. His ultimate birth would have been that ultimately he would die. The Scottish pastor William Barclay said it perfectly when commenting on this passage. He wrote these words, gold for a king, frankincense for a priest, myrrh for the one that was to die. These were the gifts of the wise men, and even at the cradle of Christ, they foretold that he was to be the true king, the perfect high priest, and in the end, the supreme savior of men. Now, here's the truth. We don't necessarily know perfectly well the motivations of these wise men. Perhaps they considered him nothing more than just a divine monarch, and they wanted to make sure that in either case that they covered their bases and they gave homage, they gave honor to that one. We don't know. But the passage does emphasize that they received the sign from heaven that they had heard the words of Scripture and they were led to the exact place that that star was and that they naturally bowed and worshipped him. 
And the evidence of their worship was in the gifts that they gave, gifts that were fit for a divine king. And so I want to ask you the question as we close today, what, what is the significance for us today as we read about these infamous yet obscure wise men? Did you know that every person who ultimately will become a fully devoted follower of Jesus, and you'll remember just a few weeks ago we finished a series where we defined for you what it meant to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus. I'm not talking about somebody who will show up at church on Christmas and on Easter. I'm talking everyone who will ultimately become a fully devoted follower of Jesus will ultimately offer similar gifts to God through their life. Follow me this way. It begins with myrrh. As we've said, myrrh is a symbol of death, and not only our death, but the death that we deserve because of the debt of sin that we have that we can't possibly pay on our own. And placing our trust in Jesus Christ acknowledges that we're sinners, that we deserve to be eternally separated from God. But the good news of the gospel is that when he died in our place, That is the gift of God. Jesus died to bring us life. But when we become fully devoted followers of Christ, we die to self in order that we might live for him. For so many of us, the reason why we have found it so difficult to live for Jesus is because we have never really died to ourself. But can I remind you this morning that becoming a true follower of Jesus Christ, being a fully devoted follower of Jesus, always involves an authentic relationship with Jesus, always involves dying to self. If there is no death to self, you are still dead in your trespasses and in your sin. You still owe a debt that you can't possibly pay on your own. And so we have to offer the gift of death in order that we might have life. The gift of frankincense is symbolized as our worship. We're to live our lives then for him. Once we die to self, once we place our trust in Christ's death on the cross as the payment of the penalty for our sin, we live then to worship. Our desire is for our lives to be lived in a way that is a fragrant offering that's pleasing to him, that as we live our lives, the aroma of our lives makes its way up to him and it's pleasing to him. We see it all the way through uh, the New Testament. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you, Paul says, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a what? A living sacrifice. And I, for one, am glad that he said a living sacrifice. Somebody once said the problem with a living sacrifice is it's too easy for the living sacrifice to crawl off the altar, right? He said to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you might discern what the will of God is, what what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul further said to the Ephesians in Ephesians 5, 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Be a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's what it means when we offer him the gift of our frankincense. We offer him the gift of our worship, meaning we're fully devoted to him and we live our lives in a way that we bring pleasure to the very heart of God. And then the gift of gold symbolizes our acknowledgement that he alone is the boss.
that he's the boss. It's another problem for many of us. We, we want to die to ourselves, so to speak, in the fact that we understand we owe a debt that we can't possibly pay on our, on our own, and so we're willing to say that we die to ourselves. But when it comes to the gift of gold, when it comes to acknowledging his royalty, when it comes to acknowledging his kingship, that he's the boss of our life, that is for so many of us where we fall woefully short. The Bible, by the way, makes it very clear that one day every human being will bring this gift to Jesus. To acknowledge him now is to acknowledge him as your Savior and Lord and assure your eternal destiny in heaven because your sin debt has been paid in full. To acknowledge him later is just simply to do what he said you ultimately will do. Ephesians, or Philippians 2, 9-11 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. It's above your name. No matter how great you think you might be, no matter how accomplished you think you might be in this life, no matter what wealth you have accumulated, no matter what it is that you think that you do that bring, that bring favor, that brings pleasure to the heart of God because of who you are, you are not the name that is above every name. His name is the name that is above every name. Paul goes on to say, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue one day will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what happens when we bring him our gold. <laughs> we acknowledge him as our king. We acknowledge the death he died and the death that we died to self in order that we might live for him. We live our lives uh, as a fragrant offering to him. And we acknowledge his kingship his lordship, his authority in our lives. If you still have your Bible open, look at uh, verse uh, 12 again in that text. We're told in chapter 2, verse 12, that having been warned not to go back to Herod's palace because of his murderous intentions, that they departed to their own country by another way. I find that intriguing. Somehow, some way, whether somebody warned them or again God spoke and they were sensitive to what he was saying. They said, don't go back and report to Herod before you go back to your country. Just leave and go another way. And I want to tell you this morning, this week before Christmas, so will you and I when we have a genuine encounter with Jesus. We will go a different way when we surrender our lives to Jesus. And can I suggest to you that if your life has not followed a different path, perhaps it's because you've never really truly had a life-changing encounter with Jesus. We, we say it often around here at Northwest, when, when, when you come face-to-face with who Jesus is and the relationship that he wants and desires to have with you because of what he did on the cross to pay a debt that he didn't owe, to pay a debt that you couldn't possibly pay on your own. When you come face to face with that, when you understand the reality of who you and I are without Jesus, your life will never, ever, ever be the same. Our life will follow a different path. 
Maybe if you've never really experienced life change, could I suggest you this morning, maybe you've never personally placed your trust in him as your savior. Maybe you simply know a lot about him, but you really don't know him. Jesus Christ was not born to make our world just a little better, to make our winter months a little more bearable, to give us a holiday to celebrate in the dreary month of December to make life and death a little more tolerable. He wasn't born into the world with just a few problems existing that, that needed improving. And if he could just tweak them a little bit, then, then, he, then everything would be okay. No, on the contrary, Jesus was born into a world filled with corruption, filled with abuses, neglect, diseases, and disabilities, a world that was horrifically impacted by sin's curse, a world that was separated from God, a world without hope, a world that needed a Savior. That's the world that Jesus was born into. That's the world that exists today. And that, my friends, is why we celebrate Christmas. He was compelled by a love to do what only he could do because he was perfect, because he was holy. Christ was born in a manger in humility, and he surrendered his life on a cross in humiliation. One person dying for the sins of all mankind. That is the very definition and essence of an eternal gift. That is why we celebrate Christmas. And that's how you reclaim Christmas, is to be reminded that that, at the very end of the day, is what it's about. I don't care how great your sugar cookies are. I don't care about those little pigs in a blanket that you're going to eat Christmas Eve. Now that eggnog that's so special that you get one time a year, that beautiful tree, that nice wreath, maybe that new car that will sit in your driveway, nothing beats when you understand that the Christmas story is all about us understanding what it means to have a personal, saving relationship with Jesus. He came to live and then ultimately die that we might have life. And John 10.10 says, life to the max. Life to the full. And that's why we celebrate Christmas.